The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So take the handout and turn to page four. I've given you a kind of a running summary of where we've been, but we don't have the time to go through all that. But it's there for you to overlook. Um, and and the Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It was written by John Bunyan at the, toward the end of the 17th century, 16, uh, I think, uh, uh, 1678, the first part, and then the next part came out about four years later. We're looking at part one. And it presents the Christian life as a whole, from conversion to death, as a, as a pilgrimage. Uh, it's an allegory, and there's symbolic language, uh, but there are just different things that happen along the way, and that's the power of it. As I said, Bunyan was such a, such a, a teacher of the Word of God. His mind was so saturated with Scripture, it just seems to flow. And so people have come along, and sometimes you see online, or you could even buy editions of Pilgrim's Progress, and they'll put scripture references right there on the line. He didn't write those in there, he just knew them. Uh, but those are editors that have come in and said, oh, check out this verse or this verse, etc." So it's pretty exciting. But now we're gonna pick up where we were, and we're right in the middle of the story, and the last thing that happened that we looked at last week was how Christian and Hopeful got off the path, and they got onto something called Bypath Meadow, because for that stretch, the true path to the celestial city was rough. It was difficult. And they saw running right alongside the true road, something called Bypath Meadow. Grass was nice and soft, comfortable for the feet, seemed to be running parallel with the true way, and they jumped the fence. And so like red light should have gone off at that point in their mind, never, ever, ever leave the path. But they did because they reasoned that it would run along the true path for a while. So they made compromises and they went off. But the problem was they uh, were in a little while diverted quite far actually from the true path. And not only that, but there started to be some dangers um, as somebody that went ahead of them um, fell into a pit and they didn't see him anymore. Um, Vain Confidence was his name. Uh, now they know they're in trouble, but the problem is a storm comes in and it's getting late in the day, it's getting to be dark. And so they can't find their way back. And so they just decide to sleep there on the ground and wake up in the morning, give it another try. But the problem is they are awakened in the morning by a giant named Despair who seizes them, arrests them, and puts them in his dungeon, the Doubting Castle dungeon. And uh, they have a horrible time there. <clears throat> the time that they, ha they spend there, um, they are tempted to commit suicide. They are so filled with depression, so filled with despair and the giant is prodding them and beating them and all that. And this is really a picture of, of the challenges some Christians have with depression, with spiritual depression and how overwhelming it can be. Well, they eventually escape because Christian finds in his breast pocket a key called promise, thank you. Uh, so the scripture is the key to everything. And so they begin to quote and to pray the promises of God and it, it's represented by an actual key that changes size and shape to meet any locked gate that will keep them in. So it's pretty awesome. Uh, one, one size seems to fit all, and so they just take the promises of God and they just they escape. And they get back to the path and they put up a warning sign to future pilgrims to not jump the fence. That's where we're at now. 
So uh, as we begin the, uh, tonight, we're going to look at uh, the detectable, delectable mountains sorry, and the shepherds. Uh, they went then until they came to the delectable mountains, which mountains belong to the Lord of that hill of which we have spoken before. So they went up to the mountains to behold the gardens and orchards, the vineyards and fountains of water, where also they drank and washed themselves and did freely eat of the vineyards. So as I've said before, one of the great truths that's found in this pilgrimage in, the, in Bunyan's allegorical account is the rhythm between extreme trials and then periods of refreshment. And so this is one of those times, and boy, do they need it. Uh, I really think that their time in Doubting Castle was the worst they had in the entire pilgrimage, and it was a terrible time. So they're there, and they're being refreshed. So it reminds me of Psalm 20, 23, if someone could read these very familiar verses for us off your sheet. All right, so a question for you is, what are some of the ways that the Lord restores our souls? How does the Lord fulfill Psalm 23 in our souls? By hearing God's word taught and preached by your own quiet times? You get in the word and your soul is restored. Anyone else? How does the Lord restore our souls? Absolutely. He, uh, just by, uh, by gathering together in a local church setting where you can sing and praise and hear God's word with other Christians. Anyone else? Absolutely. So meditation on our future life, our heavenly life can restore us for sure. Just physical rest. Uh, sometimes that's all you need. Uh, just like Elijah after the battle with the prophets of Baal and then the threat from Jezebel, all he needed, it seemed, was sleep and something to eat and drink, and, and he was renewed. So that can, that can be it, yeah, for sure. Um, another question that we would ask here is, why is that so needed in the Christian life, the restoration of our souls? Why do we need that? I mean, isn't Jesus enough? I mean, isn't, uh, why would we need our souls restored? Okay. So we've got a constant battle with Satan. Let's just expand it to the usual three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are constantly assaulting us. We're struggling with that. And what's the result of that struggle, the struggle that we have with the world, the flesh, and the devil? What does that do to us? Makes us weary, makes us tired, makes us need to have our souls restored. It's not true that we're always at peak power in this world spiritually. And so we absolutely need our souls restored. And so for me as a pastor, I have to think that in all of my public ministry of the word, I, I hope that I am restoring the souls of the, of the sheep, of Christ's sheep, renewing their hearts so that as a result of the ministry of the word and all the other things we've discussed, they are more energetic and more able to continue. And so that's something. But it's just helpful, isn't it, to know that your soul will need to be restored. That actually the, the spring of water, the living water that Jesus opened up within you is something that you need to go to again and again and again to drink from. It's a rhythm in the Christian life of being renewed and then renewed again and renewed again. And we should expect that the rest of our lives. Well, let's keep going. Now there were on the tops of these mountains shepherds feeding their flocks. And they stood by the highway side. <clears throat> the pilgrims therefore went to them. And leaning upon their staves, as is common with weary pilgrims, when they stand to talk with any by the way, they asked, Whose delectable mountains are these? And whose be the sheep that feed upon them? Then Bunyan wrote this poem, Mountains delectable they now ascend, Where shepherds be, which to them do commend, Alluring things, and things that cautious are, Pilgrims are steady kept by faith and fear. So that's going to be a, a kind of a quick summary of what the shepherds are going to show them. Uh, delicious, wonderful, enticing things, and also things that put them in a healthy fear. So that's what we're talking about. So the shepherds answer the question. These mountains are Emmanuel's land, 
and they are within sight of his city, and the sheep also are his, and he laid down his life for them. Christian, is this the way to the celestial city? Shepherds, you are just in your way. So in other words, yes. The shepherds don't seem to give any straight answers here. So it's, uh, you know, there's always like some deeper meaning to everything they say. How far is it thither? Shepherds, too far for any, but those that shall get thither indeed. <laughs> what in the world is that? In other words, it's too far for those that won't make it. <laughs> so if you're not going to make it, it'll be too far for you. Anyway. Um, is the way safe or dangerous? Shepherds, safe for those for whom it is to be safe, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Christian, is there in this place any relief for pilgrims that are weary and faint in the way? Shepherds, the Lord of these mountains hath given us charge not to be forgetful to entertain strangers. Therefore, the good of this place is before you. So Hebrews 13 gives that command to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have entertained angels without knowing it. That's what Hebrews 13 says. So a discussion question, what do you make of the shepherd's answer concerning the way to the celestial city? Second question, how is it safe for the elect but unsafe for all others? So what do you make of their answer? That's so true. And it seems that the shepherds are concerned that these pilgrims keep running the race. They're not done yet. They're not there. So Jesus said it this way, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So we are exhorted in scripture to keep running the race with endurance until we're there. And so there's a sense of danger. And so if you were to ask the shepherds, are we in danger? What do you think they would say? Do you think that we're in danger on this road? Yeah, absolutely. You are in danger. All right. But the Lord is greater than any danger you'll meet. The Lord is greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil. But I can't say to you as a pastor, you're all safe. Or for the next week, you'll be safe. After that, you need to take heed to your souls. I'm not going to say anything like that. You are always exhorted from Scripture to be watchful, to pray, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This is, this is how Scripture talks to us while we're in this world. And so that's, I think it's actually pretty appropriate to put us, you know, in a sense of seriousness about what we're about. All right, the, spirits re uh, sorry, the shepherds refreshed the weary pilgrims. I saw also in my dream that when the shepherds perceived that they were wayfaring men, they also put questions to them, to which they made answer as in other places, as, whence came you, and how got you into the way, and by what means have you so persevered therein? For but few of them that begin, come hither, uh, begin to come hither do show their face on these mountains. But when the shepherds heard their answers, being pleased therewith, they looked very lovingly upon them and said, Welcome to the delectable mountains. The shepherds, I say, whose names were knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere, took them by the hand and had them to their tents and made them partake of that which was ready at present. They said, moreover, We would that ye should stay here a while to be acquainted with us, and yet more to solace yourselves with the good of these delectable mountains. They then told them that they were content to stay. So they went to their rest that night because it was very late. So what do you think these shepherds represent in the Christian life? And what do you make of their names? By the way, I don't know the answers to all these allegorical questions. I just want to know your opinion. What do these shepherds represent? So pastors. And that's what the word pastor means. It's related to the, you know, the English word for a shepherd, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's out in the pasture or is a pastoral person. Um, that idea is of shepherding the sheep. So that, I think maybe just human shepherds. What do you think of their names? 
look at them. Uh, knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere. Okay, yeah. They're mature believers. They're, they're men of serious speech, as the scripture says, of elders. Who, spirit, serious speech that cannot be confounded or contradicted, that kind of thing. Not frivolous. They have a sense of the seriousness of their work, uh, etc. They've been there. They're not recent converts, uh, like it says about elders, um, but they have been at it for a while. They are watchful and mindful of danger, and they are who they appear to be. That's what sincere means, that they are not hypocrites. They're, they're, they're actually what they appear to be. Okay, the magnificent view from the mountains. Then I saw in my dream that in the morning the shepherds called up to Christian and hopeful to walk with them upon the mountains. And so they went forth with them and walked a while, having a pleasant prospect on every side. So that means they have a really sweet view from the mountains. And that's why people go to the mountains, because you can see a long way away, and it's very beautiful. And so they take them to see all of the beauties that they can uh, see. And they're going to see something even more beautiful than that. We'll talk about that presently. Let me just say one thing about the Puritan movement, the English Puritan movement. Uh, there are many contributions that the Puritans made. I would say the Baptist movement, uh, the great contribution the Baptists have made to church history is a right understanding of the local church as being comprised of genuine believers, not a state church where infant baptism feeds people into the church who are not born again. But Baptists had a vision for a believer's church. That's what the Baptists did. The Puritans uh, contribute a lot of other things. I think their home base is an understanding of sanctification of the Christian life, of the holiness that must follow genuine conversion. And frankly, they have a good understanding of genuine conversion. But the idea of justification by faith alone coming from the Scripture, that's the centerpiece of the original Reformation. Martin Luther, all of those folks really understood that. The Puritans came 100 years later, and they said on top of that justification comes holiness, sanctification, a journey, a pilgrimage. And this is like almost the crown jewel of that theme, Pilgrim's Progress is. Another sub-theme in the Puritan movement, however, is the understanding of the office of a pastor. What kind of person should he be? How should he carry himself? What's the nature of his ministry? Please understand that there were lots of people in the Anglican church, the state-run church then, that were terrible pastors who weren't even born again. For them, it was like a franchise. If you were the second son, you didn't get the inheritance, your older son did, and you either went into the military or into the ministry. And so here you are going into the ministry, but you don't know Jesus at all. Uh, as um, uh, I think it was David Brainerd said and got, got him expelled from Yale, of one of his tutors, he has no more grace than that chair over there. Um, so that's not a thing you should say. It's not very respectful, but it probably was true. Or as George Whitfield would later preach on the danger of an unconverted clergy. So the Puritans really gave us a sense of what a true shepherd of souls should look like. All right, let's continue. <clears throat> Some scary warning sites. So they don't see just beautiful scenic vistas from the delectable mountains. The shepherds have some things to say and show them. Then said the shepherds to one another, shall we show these pilgrims some wonders? So when they had concluded to do it, they had them first to the top of a hill called Error, which was very steep on, on the furthest side and bid them look down to the bottom. So Christian and Hopeful looked down and saw at the bottom several men dashed all to pieces by a fall that they had had from the top. Then said Christian, What meaneth this? The shepherds answered, Have you not heard of them that were made to err by hearkening to Hymenaeus and Philetus, as concerning the faith of the resurrection of the body? 2 Timothy 2. They answered, Yes. Then said the shepherds, Those that you see lie dashed in pieces at the bottom of the mountain are they. 
and they have continued to this day unburied, as you see. For an example to others to take heed how they clamber too high or how they come too near the brink of this mountain. So they are pointing out the danger of false teaching, of doctrinal error. Hymenaeus and Philetus are mentioned as false teachers. And so their bones are bleaching in the sun so that everyone that comes in later can say, look at, can see, look at the danger of false teaching. Even on what we might consider a minor point, namely eschatology, future things, the resurrection from the dead, certain aspects. Even going astray on that can lead uh, to great danger. And so these shepherds are saying, you need to watch out for false teaching. They're giving them that sense. Let me tell a personal story. I know I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. All right. You're like, but pastor, we've got to finish the entire sheet. I'm going to do my best. But I'm going to tell the story anyway. I was on a mission trip to Pakistan, and we were there for a while. We're in the northeast frontier province of Pakistan. And then we got visas to cross over into China, into the western part of China, far, far west, way, uh, way away from civilizations, about as far from uh, civilization as ever been. We took a, a bus there, and it went along this treacherous mountain road and there was this very scary shale looking mountain with all these slidey stones and this um this road was cut like a notch into the side of the mountain so imagine a slope and then there's this just notch and that was the road that the bus went on there was no guardrail there was no road there was just a notch caught in, cut in the mountain and we were going around this mountain Halfway around, as we're curving around, I noticed at the bottom of a deep ravine a bus just like the one I was on. The same bus line. And it looked newer than the bus I was on. So I'm like, oh, Jesus, be with us now. Help us, you know. I didn't ask the bus driver anything. I didn't want to know anything. I'm just saying, please stay as far from the edge as you possibly can. No guardrail, nothing. There it was. So I don't know if that was a week ago or a month ago. It didn't matter to me. I'm just saying this doesn't look too good. Anyway, that's what pops in my mind as I think about Hymenaeus and Philetus' bones at the bottom of the ravine bleaching. This is great danger. Then I saw that they had them to the top of another mountain, and the name of that is Caution. And they bid them look afar off, which when they did, they perceived, as they thought, several men walking up and down among the tombs that were there. And they perceived that the men were blind, because they stumbled sometimes along the t among the tombs or upon the tombs and because they could not get out from among them. Then said Christian, what means this? The shepherds then answered, did you not see a little below these mountains a stile that led into a, mount a meadow on the left hand of this way? They answered, yes. Then said the shepherds, well, from that stile, there goes a path that leads directly to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair. And these, pointing to them among the tombs, came once on pilgrimage, as you do now, even till they came to that same style. And because the right way was rough in that place, they chose to go out of it into that meadow. And they were taken by giant despair and cast into Doubting Castle, where after they had been a while kept in the dungeon, he at last did put out their eyes and led them among the, those tombs where he has left them to wander to this very day, that the saying of the wise man might be fulfilled. He that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. Proverbs 21:16. Then Christian and hopeful looked upon one another 
with tears gushing out, but yet said nothing to the shepherds. So what do you think they're thinking at that moment? That could have been us. That could have been us. I mean, God didn't guarantee and promise that if you foolishly leave the way, he will most certainly get you back and restore you and all that. Sometimes people are given over, and it could have been them. Remember that the giant despair took them out in the courtyard to show them all the bones of the, their earlier, his earlier victims. They weren't there for nothing. And so it's amazing, really, that they escaped. So I think they're feeling probably guilty <laughs> right there, but also thankful. Then I saw in my dream that the shepherds had them to another place in a bottom, which uh, where was a door in the side of the hill, and they opened the door and bid them look in. They looked in, therefore, and saw that within it was very dark and smoky. They also thought that they heard there a rumbling noise as of fire, and a cry of some tormented, and that they uh, smelt the scent of brimstone. Then said, Christian, what means this? The shepherds told them, this is a byway to hell, a way that hypocrites go in at, namely, such as sell their birthright with Esau, such as sell their master with Judas, such as blaspheme the gospel with Alexander, and that lie and dissemble with Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. Then said, hopeful to the shepherds, I perceive that these had on them even every one a show of pilgrimage, as we have now, had they not? Yes, said the shepherds, and held it a long time, too. Hopeful. How far might they go on in pilgrimage in their day, since they notwithstanding were thus miserably cast away? Shepherds, some further and some not as far as these mountains. Then said the pilgrims to one another, We have need to cry to the strong for strength. Shepherds, I and you will have need to use it when you have it too. So this is quite a question. When they see this, it's like hell. They're looking into hell. And then specific names are mentioned. And they ask a question, Hopeful does. Weren't they like well along in the, in the road, the pilgrimage for a while? Yeah. And they ended up in hell. So what are we to think about that? How should we understand that? So how do we understand the apostasy of some who seem to have been real Christians and who then deny the faith? How do we understand that? And obviously we have a pretty well-known case these days with Joshua Harris. And I have to tell you how grievous it is to me because I know him personally. He was part of the Gospel Coalition. We had conversations. Sweet brother, so far as I could tell. Wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye and then some other books took over from C.J. Mahaney at the Sovereign Grace Church. The church got into some great difficulty over some abuse cases that weren't handled properly before Joshua Harris's time, but they led into some difficulties. About a year ago, he greatly distanced himself from the things he wrote in, in uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, regretted having written it. But I thought, and so did my wife and others, that he went way too far. There is a saying, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and there might have been some bathwater in I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but there was a lot of good biblical teaching there on sexual purity before marriage, other things like that. Why are we throwing the whole thing out? But then the other, other shoe dropped quite recently, about a week or so ago, and he basically said, I'm not a Christian. He, no, he didn't basically say it. He said it. Now, I've said before, I don't necessarily believe everyone who tells me I am a Christian, but I do believe everyone who says I am not a Christian. 
because no one can say that speaking by the Spirit of God. So here's the question. How do we understand cases like that of apostasy? What are we to make of it? How do we process that? Not so much Joshua Harris, but you look at the, this list of people that were, it seems, on pilgrimage, and then they get cast into hell. So what Craig said is the, the, the best um, proof for assurance of salvation is, is perseverance in the faith to the end. And we said that a few minutes ago. You have to keep running the race. It's like an Olympic athlete saying, how much of the race do I need to run in order to uh, win the medal? Like all of it. Anyone else? How do we process or understand people? It seems like we're, we're doing very well in the Christian life, but now they're not walking at all with the Lord. All right, should we fear that we ourselves will become apostates? Should we fear that? Or should we say that could never happen to me? Those are your options. What are your thoughts? I think that's a very good word, even though I said it. All right? <laughs> I think there are many warnings in Scripture and the scripture as a whole are written for the elect to bring them to salvation and keep them in it. And so categorically, who is it that takes these warnings to heart? Who is it that heeds them properly? Who is it that does the right thing with the warnings? Isn't it us, the redeemed? Isn't it the ones that the Lord is working in? And the warnings have a, a role to play. As a matter of fact, I think that the book of Hebrews as a whole is a warning epistle. It's what it's for. It was given to warn Jewish professors of faith in Christ in the first century to not turn their backs on Jesus and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And that if they did, nothing remained for them except fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's right from the book of Hebrews. That's a warning. And so it's, you know, uh, there's three aways in it. In chapter 2, don't drift away. Chapter 3, don't turn away. And chapter 6, don't fall away. Those three are in the NIV 84, the away. Tr drift away, turn away, fall away. They're like progressions. Drifting is not intentional. It just kind of happens. Turning is more intentional, but maybe just once one off. Falling away is, is apostasy. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a very sad thing. And uh, specifically for those that sat under his teaching, they're going to have a real battle to fight. Because, like I said in the question, the devil's in the details. You, you, you know, it's like I remember what he was like. I remember how he preached. I remember his, his facial expressions. He was much more zealous for Christ than I'll ever hope to be. Much more interested. He knew more of the Bible. It's like if somebody like that can fall away, and, and that's hard. And he has done damage to people who listen to him and all that. And it's a warning to me as a pastor. It's important for me that I continue to run my race so that I can be a benefit to this flock. Yes, go ahead. Very sad. Sad for me uh, personally, and I thank you for that. I think the thing is there is a healthy fear of apostasy, and there's an unhealthy fear of apostasy. I think the thing is the book of Hebrews gives us something called today. If today you hear his voice, that's all we ever have. So today walk with Jesus. Today, be serious about sin. Today, fight sin. Today, don't yield uh, to temptations. If you have, confess it quickly, repent quickly, renounce it, and stay healthy today. So, we could say a lot more about it. Let's keep going. A clear view of the celestial city. By this time, the pilgrims had a desire to go forward, and the shepherds had desired that they should. So, they walked together towards the end of the mountains. Then said the shepherds to one another, Let us here show to the pilgrims the gates of the celestial city if they have skill to look through our perspective glass. I think that's a telescope. The pilgrims then lovingly accepted the motion. So they had them to the top of a high hill called Clear, and they gave them their glass to look. 
Then they essayed to look, but the remembrance of that last thing that the shepherds had shown them, namely the doorway to hell, made their hands shake, by means of which impediment they could not look steadily through the glass. Yet they thought they saw something like the gate and also some, some of the glory of the place. Then they went away and sang this song. Thus by the shepherds secrets are revealed, which from all other men are kept concealed. Come to the shepherds then, if you would see, things deep, things hid, and that mysterious be. So here's a question. Um, God sometimes grants to his people remarkable foretastes of heaven. Bunyan has several of these in Pilgrim's Progress. For the experience later in part one, in, in Beulah, is a clear foretaste of heaven before they cross the river. Listen to this account from Jonathan Edwards. This is from his personal narrative. Once as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. I have several other times had views very much of the same nature which have had the same effects. Wow. So he's out there in the woods, lying on the ground for an hour, swimming in tears and having in his mind a vision of the glorious Christ. So my question is, why does God grant to some people, we would not say he grants it to all of them, but why does he grant such foretastes of heavenly glory in this world? This is long before Edwards died. Um, there's some clues, all right, like to what kind of people do you think God gives these foretastes? First of all, does he give them to every Christian? You just haven't gotten yours yet. <laughs> do you think it's possible to go through your entire Christian life in a generally good and fruitful way without ever having a foretaste like this, of an hour on the ground, swimming in tears, having a foretaste of heavenly glory. Is it possible to go through a whole Christian life and never have that happen? I think it's actually common. But to whom do you think that God would grant such foretastes? Special people? People like Jonathan Edwards and all that. Well, look at the beginning of his testimony. Look what it says. Once, as I rode out into the woods from my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, listen, as my manner commonly has been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was for me extraordinary. So what are some clues in his account here that might give us a sense of who it is that God might give a vision like this to? People that are seeking it, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open. 
It could be that you could pray for three or four years for something like this, and then God might grant it. And here's the thing. Such a pursuit would involve Scripture, right? Prayer, meditation, seclusion, quiet. Do you think such a pursuit could do you any harm? I'm thinking no. It's not exactly a guilty pleasure we're talking about here. We're talking about having time to seek God's face. And remember what it says in Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible to please him, because whoever would come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Well, that might be the clue right there. Maybe we don't have it because we don't diligently seek it. But God can give you a foretaste of heavenly glory if you'd seek it. All right, a final warning from the shepherds. When they were about to depart, one of the shepherds gave them a note of the way. Another of them bid them beware of the flatterer. The third bid them take heed that they sleep not upon the enchanted ground. And the fourth bid them Godspeed. So those are the warnings and the exhortations from the shepherds. Next, the conversation with ignorance. So they meet ignorance, and I'm just going to summarize this part because we need to skip ahead. Ignorance is a young man who thinks he's headed for the celestial city, but he came not in by the gate, just like some others, jumped in some other way. Okay? He is trusting in his own good works, in his uh, financial giving to the poor and needy, and in the fact that he's on a spiritual pilgrimage. Christian warns him that he is self-deceived, and that there is no way to enter except by the gate. Jesus Christ. Ignorance answers, Gentlemen, ye be utter strangers to me. I know you not. Be content and follow the religion of your country, and I will follow the religion of mine. I hope all will be well. And as for the gate that you talk of, all the world knows that that is a great way off of our country. I cannot think that any man in all our parts doth so much as know the way to it, nor need they matter whether they do or no, since we have, as you see, a fine, pleasant green lane that comes down from our country the next way into the way. Now, I think as I meditate on this this afternoon, I was writing this handout, it seemed to me that this represents people in other countries who have their own religion and their own morality, and frankly, even their own pilgrimages, and their own gifts to the poor and needy, and their own prayer patterns, and think that our way is from another country and way too far out for them, and they're happy with their own religion. So who would that represent? State religions in Europe. State religions in Europe, okay. How about Muslims? Could it represent Muslims? Are they not satisfied with their own morality? satisfied with their own pilgrimages and with their own prayer patterns? And does not Christianity seem like an alien religion to them from some other country? And the name of this person is ignorance. They don't know any other way. They don't know Christ. They don't know the truth, etc. So it made me think of missions. All right, we'll come back to ignorance because he doesn't disappear from the uh, account. So let's just jump ahead. Uh, they, they all, the Christian hopeful both decided, let's just let ignorance be alone for a while, think about some of the things we've said, and then we'll circle back. So we'll get back to ignorance, um, not tonight, but later. Then there's this individual called Turnaway. Now, when they had passed him a little way, they entered into a very dark lane, 
where they met a man from whom seven, sorry, whom seven devils had bound with seven strong cords and were carrying of him back to the door that they saw on the side of the hill. So what door was that? Going to hell. So they are bound by devils with cords and they're being carried to the doorway of hell. Now good Christian began to tremble and so did Hopeful, his companion. Yet as the devils led away the man, Christian looked to see if he knew him. And he thought it might be one turnaway that dwelt in the town of apostasy. But he did not perfectly see his face, for he did hang his head like a thief that is found. But once uh, being once passed, Hopeful looked after him and espied on his back a paper with this inscription, Wanton Professor and Damnable Apostate. You should just know the Puritans use the word professor as someone who makes a profession of faith in Christ. It's not somebody who's a, a lecturer at a university. All right, now let's talk about little faith. Christian tells Hopeful about the assault of little faith. Then Christian said to his fellow, Now I call to remembrance that which was told me of a thing that happened to a good man hereabout. The name of the man was Little Faith, but a good man, and he dwelt in the town of Sincere. So stop. Well, just since this is an allegory and the names are, what do we know about this, this man so far? Okay, would you call him a believer? Well, let me ask you a question. How are we justified? Faith. By faith. If you have faith in Christ, I mean, are you justified? Yes. Did Jesus ever call his own disciples little faith? All the time. So I'm just saying, if you have zero faith, you're not born again. If you have little faith, what would you say? You're born again. And what are other indications that, that Bunyan thinks this guy actually is a genuine believer? He's from the town of Sincere. You can usually tell what town they're from, all right? If you're from the town of apostasy, that's not looking good for you. But this guy is from the town of Sincere. So he is a sincere believer, all right? But he's called little faith. Also, Christian calls him a good man. So that's what we, so let's find out what happens to him. The thing was this, at the entering in at this passage, there comes down from Broadway gate, a lane called Dead Man's Lane, so-called because of the murders that are commonly done there. And this little faith going on pilgrimage, as we do now, chanced to sit down there and slept. Now there happened at that time to come down from the, down the lane from Broadway gate, three sturdy rogues. And their names were Faint Heart, mistrust and guilt three brothers and they espying little faith where he was came galloping up with speed now the good man was just awake from his sleep and was getting up to go on his journey so they came up all to him and with threatening language bid him stand at this little faith looked as white as a clout and had neither power to fight nor fly then said faint heart deliver thy purse but he making no haste to do it, for he was loath to lose his money, mistrust ran up to him, and thrusting his hand into his pocket, pulled out thence a bag of silver. Then he cried out, Thieves, thieves! With that guilt, with a great club that was in his hand, struck little Faith on the head, and with that blow felled him flat to the ground, where he lay bleeding as one that would bleed to death. All this while the thieves stood by, but at last... They, hearing that some were upon the road, and fearing lest it should be one great grace that dwells in the city of good confidence, they betook themselves to their heels and left this good man to shift for himself. Now, after a while, little Faith came to himself and getting up made shift to scrabble on his way. This was his story. 
All right, so these three robbers, faint heart, mistrust, and guilt, I think, I'm, I'm not going to ask the question, I'll just tell you what I think. They represent what effect that they had on little faith. They produced these things in him as they beat him up. And they take from him a bag of silver. Now let's keep going with the story. But did they take from him all that he ever had? No, said Christian. The place where his jewels were, they never ransacked, so he kept those still. But as I was told, the good man was much afflicted for his loss, for the thieves got most of his spending money. That which they got not, as I said, were jewels. Also, he had a little odd money left, but scarce enough to bring him to his journey's end. Nay, if I was not misinformed, he was forced to beg as he went to keep himself alive. For his jewels he might not sell, but beg and do what he could. He went, as we say, with many a hungry belly, the most part of the rest of the way. Hopeful. But is it not a wonder that they got not from him his certificate by which he was to receive his admittance at the celestial gate? Christian, it is a wonder, but they got not that, though they missed it not through any good cunning of his, for he, being dismayed with their coming upon him, had neither power nor skill to hide anything. So it was more by the good providence than by his endeavor, endeavor sorry, that they missed of that good thing. All right, so what does the fact that Little Faith's jewels and scroll were not stolen from him represent? To help you, I gave you Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Anyone want to read that for us? This is my guess at what Bunyan means. Someone read Matthew 6. Go ahead. Just a guess that this is what Bunyan had in mind and that this man's jewels were kept in a safe place that couldn't be ransacked. Um, so what does it represent then that his jewels couldn't be stolen? Yeah, internal destiny in heaven and his treasure in heaven where you store up treasure um, by good works, by service to God. That's what we store up once we're come, we've come to Christ. And so your real treasure is uh, up in heaven. Now, what's really interesting what happens with this guy, all right? Verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But this guy seems to have a problem with that. Now, let me tell you what I think this represents. It represents afflictions that come in life, maybe even literal thieves that come and take valuable things from you. And as a result of that theft, your earthly life is much harder. I think that's what's happened to this guy. Something has happened. Could be a natural disaster, a tornado that might come through, destroys your home. You survive with your life and your family's fine, but you lost a lot of your possessions. Things like that happen. All right. Well, let's look now at Little Faith's <coughs> reaction to this trial. But it must needs be a comfort to him that they got not his jewels from him. Christian, it might have been a great comfort to him. <laughs> Let me stop. It should have been a great comfort to him. Let's keep going. Had he used it as he, sh as he should. But they that told me the story said that he made but little use of it all the rest of the way. And that because of the dismay that he had in the taking away his money, indeed he forgot it a great part of the rest of, of his journey. And besides, when at any time it came into his mind, and he began to be comforted therewith, then would fresh thoughts of his loss come again upon him, and those thoughts would swallow up all. Hopeful. Alas, poor man, this could not but be a great grief to him. Grief, aye, grief indeed. Would it not have been so to any of us, had we been used as he, used as he, to be robbed and wounded too, and that in a strange place as he was? It is a wonder that he did not die with grief, poor heart. 
I was told that he scattered almost all the rest of the way with nothing but doleful and bitter complaints, telling also to all that overtook him or that he overtook in the way as he went, where he was robbed and how, and who they were that did it, and what he lost, and how he was wounded, and that he hardly escaped with his life. Now, this guy has a problem, all right? What did we say about his spiritual state? What did we all agree was true of him? He's a believer. He's a genuine Christian. But how is he reacting to his loss? What grade would you give him? <laughs> Have you ever met anyone like this? They had some big thing that happened X number of X amount of time ago, and they never seem to get over it. They talk about it all the time. And they should be, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Christian says that. He doesn't seem to get any value or benefit from all, that, all the jewels that were stored up. He doesn't seem to be able to do anything with it. Reminds me of a story that I first heard from John Piper. Piper got it from John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace. Newton was a pastor, a preacher, and he loved using vivid illustrations similar to Bunyan. And he, and he has this illustration in one of his sermons. Listen to this. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. It's like you want to smack someone like that. It's not a good ministry, but I'm just saying, do you not understand how rich you are? Do you not understand that all your sins are forgiven, you've been adopted by God, and He's giving you the kingdom of heaven when you're finally done in this world? And if you travel the rest of the way saying, my carriage is broken, you're focused on the wrong things. So how could we put into practice anything that we might learn from little faith's response? Okay, so if your car needs a new engine next month, all right, do you think you could put this into, into practice? All right. I mean, how much does that cost? I mean, how much is a new engine? What do you think? A transmission? Okay. What's a new engine go for? Okay. <laughs> Ballpark. Thousands. All right. We'll just say thousands. Big trial. All right. So if something like that happens, what is the lesson here? What should you do? Get over it. Move on. Things happen. Losses occur. Go in your heart to your heavenly treasure and realize that's still there and draw joy from it. Lisa, go ahead. Yeah, and here's the thing, friends. Uh, there's the reality of the situation, and then there's the best way to minister to somebody who's being like that. Those are two different things. How do you approach somebody like that? How do you try to persuade them to set their hearts on things above, to be filled with joy at what they, they do have and all that? It's hard, but sometimes you have to do that for yourself. So let's keep going. We're running out of time. And then I'll regret that story I told you earlier, and I don't want to do that. All right, um, hopeful. But it is a wonder that his necessity did not put him upon selling or pawning some of his jewels, that he might have wherewith to relieve himself of his journey. This is, this is a pretty funny moment here in Pilgrim's Progress. Listen to this. Thou talkest like one upon whose head is the shell to this very day. For what should he pawn them, or to whom should he sell them? In all that country where he was robbed, his jewels were not accounted of, nor did he want that relief which could come would, from thence could be administered to him. Besides, had his jewels been missing at the gate of the celestial city, he had, and that he knew well, off, well enough, been excluded from an inheritance there. 
and that would have been worse to him than the appearance and villainy of 10,000 thieves. So he begins his answer to Hopeful saying, you're an idiot. That's basically what he says. So look what Hopeful says. Why art thou so tart, my brother? All right. It's like you're, you're kind of salty here. What's gotten into you? Esau sold his birthright and that for a mess of pottage. And that birthright was his greatest jewel. And if he might not little faith do so as well. Now Bunyan goes on the difference between Esau and little faith. Let me just summarize it. Esau was not a Christian. He wasn't a believer. He was, a, he was an apostate. He was a genuine, uh, what would you say, reprobate. He's the quintessential example of a worldly person who had no interest in the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None. So he is not little faith. They're just two different things. And that's what Bunyan says. You have to make a distinction between the two. Let's go ahead and skip ahead. All right. So at the end, then he says, Hopeful says, I acknowledge it, but yet your severe reflection had almost made me angry. In other words, when you said that my head was in the shell, I didn't appreciate it, in other words. So it's kind of funny that Bunyan has this little moment. I mean, let's be honest, Christian fellowship's not always perfect, all right? So Christian said, why I did but compare thee to some of the birds that are of the brisker sort who run to and fro in untrodden paths with a shell upon their heads. That's what you were like, that's all. But pass by that and consider the matter under debate and all shall be well betwixt thee and me. So in other words, I was just making an analogy, so I'm sorry, all right, it's kind of funny. All right, now little faith has no courage to fight. Let me summarize this as well because I want to get to the flatter. Little faith basically, hopeful says, if I had been little faith, I would have fought them. I would have taken those three guys on and fought them. And what's going to happen in this, I'll just summarize it. Basically, Christian says, and Bunyan says through Christian, not everybody's a fighter. Not everybody's a warrior. Great Grace, the warrior that these, these um, highway robbers feared, was a warrior. He's ready to, ready to fight. Other people get beat up a lot in the spiritual lives. Not everybody has equal faith. Not everybody has equal courage. Some people are just incredible heroes like Martin Luther standing up with his soul um, you know, ready, ready to die at the stake, to be burned at the stake for justification by faith alone. Not everybody has that level of courage. And so little faith was a man of little faith, but he was a genuine believer. And so uh, also he said, don't, don't underestimate what temptation can do to somebody. We look at Peter as a great warrior for Christ, but the night that Jesus was arrested, he lied to a, a little girl at the door. And it's interesting there because I think he was ready to face the Romans and he was ready to face Annas and Caiaphas, but he wasn't ready for the slave girl at the door. And so Satan came in at the side, tempted him. You're not one of his disciples, are you? No, no, no. Okay, you can get in. It's like, wait, wait, what did I just say? And now he's off and running. And then some others zero in on him and he just doubles down on that same lie. And before you know it, the rooster's crows, rooster is crowing and he's denied Jesus. So what Bunyan says, what Christian says is, temptations come on us and they can beat us up and things can be hard. So let's not judge um, what happened to little faith too severely. Okay, let's move ahead. Uh, jump ahead all the way to flatterer, their sin, their discipline. We'll spend the last minute or so on this and we'll be done. So they went on and ignorance followed. Like we said, you're going to circle back next week and talk about ignorance. Then they went uh, till they came at a place where they saw a way put itself into their way and seemed withal to lie as straight as the way which they should go. And here they knew not which of the two to take, for both seemed straight before them. Therefore, here they stood still to consider. 
And as they were thinking about the way, behold, a man black of flesh, but covered with a very light, meaning white robe, came to them and asked them why they stood there. Now, I gave you two uh, verses here about how um, false teachers, servants of Satan, can masquerade as, as servants of righteousness because Satan himself can masquerade as an angel of light. And also Jesus said, watch out for false teachers. They come to you like wolves in sheep's clothing. So this flatterer looks like a guide, but he actually isn't. He's um, black inside, so to speak. By that, he means uh, not light, not pure or holy. Um, so the flatterer misleads and snares them. They answer that they are going to the celestial city, but knew not which of these ways to take. Follow me, said the man. It is thither that I am going. So they followed him in the way. But now in that way, but came in, but now came into the road, which by degrees turned and turned them so from the city that they desired to go to that in a little time their faces were turned away from it. Yet they followed him. But by and by, before they were aware, he led them both within the compass of a net in which they were so, both so entangled that they knew not what to do. And with that, the white robe fell off the black man's back. Then they saw where they were. Wherefore, they lay crying some time, for they could not get themselves out. <coughs> then said Christian to his fellow, Now do I see myself in error. Did not the shepherds bid us beware of the flatterers? As is the saying of the wise man, so we have found this day, a man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. Hopeful. They also gave us a note of directions about the way, for our more sure finding thereof. But therein we have also forgotten to read. And have not kept ourselves from the pass of the destroyer. Here David was wiser than we, for saith he, concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the pass of the destroyer. Thus they lay bewailing themselves in the net. At last they espied a shining one coming towards them with a whip of small cord in his hand. When he was come to the place where they were, he asked them whence they came and what they did there. They told him that they were poor pilgrims going to Zion, but were led out of the way by a black man clothed in white who bid us, said they, follow him, for he was going thither too. Then said he with the whip, it is flatterer, a false apostle that has transformed himself into an angel of light. So he rent the net and let the men out. Then said he to them, follow me that I may set you in your way again. So he led them back to the way which they had left to follow the flatterer. Then he asked them, where did you lie the last night? This is really interesting. They said, with the shepherds upon the delectable mountains. He asked them if they had not, if had not those shepherds a note of direction for the way. They answered, yes. But did you, said he, when you were at the stand, pluck out and read your note? They answered, no. He asked them, why? They said they forgot. He asked, moreover, if the shepherds did not bid them beware of the flatterer. They said, yes, but we did not imagine, said they, that this fine-spoken man had been he. Then I saw in my dream that he commanded them to lie down, which when they did, he chastised them sore to teach them the good way wherein they should walk. And as he chastised them, he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So be zealous and repent. This done, he bid them go on their way and take good heed to the other directions of the shepherds. So they thanked him for all his kindness and went softly along the way singing, Come hither you that walk along the way, see how the pilgrims fare that go astray. They catched are in an entangling net, 
Cause they good counsel lightly did forget. Tis true they rescued were, but yet you see, they're scourged to boot. Let this your caution be. So I give you some verses on how the Lord disciplines us uh, when we wander from the path. I think the one takeaway from this is if you get good counsel to address some issue in your marriage or parenting or in your pr private life or battle with sin, you should probably heed it and take it. All right. So that represents the note of counsel or instruction that was given by the shepherds. When you come to this place, this is the way you should go. But they didn't read it and they got into trouble. Okay, any final comments? All right, Josh, would you close in prayer, brother? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.